Well, good morning, church family. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn to Mark chapter 1. We will finish the first chapter uh, of the Gospel of Mark here in our series uh, through this account of the ministry and life of Jesus uh, this morning. As you find your place and get settled, I want to remind you that this Wednesday night uh, starts our new season of Wednesday Night Equip. So that means everything is back Uh, On campus, preschoolers, children, students, and adults all have uh, have, uh, equip. There's our Wednesday night programming. If you're new, uh, we take the summer off, but we're starting back this Wednesday night. Adults, it's different than we have uh, done in in years past. So we would invite you to sign up beforehand. There's information in the connector and more information out in the lobby about how you can sign up for equip. And one of the things I wanted to remind adults for today is that Equip starts at 6.15. Now, over the last few years, uh, our, our, our next generation programming for students and children and preschoolers started at 6.15, but adults started at 6.30. Uh, starting this Wednesday, everything starts at 6.15. So you want to make sure that you're in place and ready to go. We're trying to give an extra 15 minutes uh, for our adult classes as we talk about the church defined in four different quarters. So if you go to the Equip Center uh, out in the left side of the lobby this morning, you can get more information. You can also sign up for a meal. We're bringing food into the equation on Wednesday nights. And so there'll be some folks there that could talk to you about uh, how you sign up for that and how you pay for that. Uh, and you could even get signed up for Equip as you, uh, as you talk. And then you could also get your Equip books and start getting ready for what I pray to be a fantastic uh, season of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. We've already exceeded our, our goal for a number of adults. We have to move some classes uh, to some different rooms. Uh, but just because we've exceeded the goal doesn't mean there's not more room for you to sign up. So you come and participate with us this Wednesday night uh, as we take a look at what the church is and what the church should do together. I invite you to stand with me as we honor the reading of God's word together. Because of the length of the passage we're going to consider this morning, I'm just going to read the first of the four stories that we will consider together. So I'm going to read verses 21 through 28. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit, convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice, came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? And he commanded even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gathered body of believers that is Nansman River Baptist Church. Thank you, God, for how we can come to your throne to worship you, to exalt our Savior, Jesus Christ, to encourage one another to love and to care well for each other. Thank you, God, that 
you speak to us still through your word. Thank you for how it teaches us about Jesus. Would we see Christ today, we pray, as we read your word and study it together, instruct our hearts, we ask in Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Today begins uh, a, a section of Mark's gospel that deals with the authority of Jesus. This is not the only sermon in the, this. Uh, this is the first of what will probably be three as we walk through chapter two as well that really surrounds uh, Mark's initial premise in his gospel that Jesus has an innate authority, an authority that doesn't come from some type of earthly position, that doesn't come from some type of title. It comes because he is God's Messiah. He is the son of God. He is God himself. And so early in Mark's gospel account, he establishes in through several different stories and really from several different angles, this one being the most general of them, that Jesus has authority. Now, we all have unique relationships with authorities in our lives. When I say the word authority, your mind likely goes to some relationship that you have. For children in the room, you often probably think of your parents as your authority. If you don't, you should because they are, okay? You probably, maybe when I say the word authorities, you think of what we often think of, and that is governmental authorities, both state, local, federal authorities that could exercise their authority in our lives. If we were to break the law or to do something that we were not supposed to do, you may think of your workplace and the people of authority that have been placed over you or the position of authority that you have over others. But for each of us, when we hear the term authority, we probably all have a little different relation to it depending on our own position and our own interaction with the authorities in our lives. Many of us have probably been around someone who desperately wanted to exercise authority. This probably happens at your job. That, that wants you to know they're the boss. You ever been around one of those people? that they just desperately want you to know that they are in control and that they have authority, that they have the power. Former English Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher said, being powerful is like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are, you aren't. And this is what we're going to see in the early stages of the ministry of Jesus. He doesn't feel the need to tell people how powerful he is. He doesn't feel the need to tell people of the supreme, ultimate, universal authority that he possesses as the son of God. He simply demonstrates his authority. And this is an important theme, particularly in the first several chapters of the gospel of Mark. And so it is one that Mark seeks to establish in kind of rapid succession, like he does throughout his gospel. It's just in rapid succession of telling one story after another, all pointing to one central idea. And the central idea of these stories contained in this section that we'll consider at the end of this chapter, all speak to the authority of Jesus. 
The main idea of today's sermon is that Jesus demonstrates his messianic authority in both the teaching and healing aspects of his ministry. Mark will record for us teachings of Jesus, and he will record for us healings of Jesus, both in this section and beyond. And the healing ministry of Jesus serves, we will see here, to validate the teaching ministry of Jesus, that because he can do the things that he can do as the Messiah, as the Son of God, it shows us that his teaching is right and authoritative. So let's begin with his teaching, that Jesus's authority is recognized in his teaching ministry from the very beginning. He doesn't have to argue for his authority. He simply teaches and his authority is recognized by those he teaches. Look at what happens in Capernaum. And they went to Capernaum. This is a small fishing village on the, the Sea of Galilee. This is the home of Peter, the disciple of Jesus. And so the gospel of Mark is, as I have told you, likely based on the teaching ministry of Peter in Rome being recorded by Mark. So it is no surprise to us or should come as no surprise that early on, we both have the calling of Peter as a disciple that we saw last week. And now an event that takes place in Peter's hometown. This was not Jesus's hometown. Nazareth was Jesus's hometown, but Capernaum was the center of Jesus's ministry because he was received well there as opposed to not being received well in Nazareth. So Capernaum kind of becomes his home base of ministry. And he goes on the Sabbath. It says immediately on the Sabbath, enters the synagogue and was teaching. The synagogue, if that word is foreign to you, the synagogue would have been the central meeting place in any Jewish town. So most, not all, but most of the towns and cities in Israel would have been primarily or exclusively Jewish. And they would have all had a synagogue. And a synagogue is, would not necessarily be like a church. When we, think, when we hear the word synagogue, we think a Jewish form of a church. It really wasn't in the first century, even though they did teach the Bible there, or they taught the Old Testament there, the Torah. They would read it aloud there, and the rabbis and the teachers would teach in that place. But it was more than that. It was a central meeting location. If a guest was coming in from out of town, they would come into the synagogue and people would gather around to hear what they have to say. And that's exactly what Jesus does. He goes into Capernaum, goes to the synagogue, and people gather around to teach. We don't know what he teaches them. All we know is their reaction. We're told in verse 22 that they were astonished at his teachings, and they tells, Mark tells us why, and this is important. For he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So from the very beginning, Jesus' teaching ministry is marked as different. It is seen by the receivers of his teachings as authoritative. It's, it's interesting to me that Mark doesn't tell us what it is that Jesus teaches here in the synagogue at Capernaum, simply that he taught and that the people recognize that his teaching is different than the other teaching that had taken place in that same synagogue directly contrasted with that of the scribes. So we need to ask the question, who are the scribes? Because this is the first time they're being introduced to us in Mark. And these are pretty important people in this gospel account. There are three different groups of people that will show up in the gospel account. 
Uh, two that are probably important for our discussions today. One is going to be the Sadducees that will show up later, particularly in, in Jesus' time in Jerusalem. But while Jesus is in his Galilean ministry, the two groups of people that he often has conflict with are the Pharisees and the scribes. The, these are both religious elite of the day. The Pharisees, in most cases, ran the synagogues in out in the surrounding regions outside of Jerusalem. They didn't have so much power inside of Jerusalem. The Sadducees did. The Pharisees exercised their power amongst the people in the synagogues. These were lay people and they were seen as the, the spiritual leaders of the day. The scribes were legal scholars who interpreted the law. And, and so the, while Pharisees may have been less educated, they would have certainly been educated in the Old Testament, uh, but they would have been seen as less educated than the scribes. The scribes were seen as academics. And they were the ones who were able to tell people with, with so, some level of assumed authority on their part, what the law meant and how people were supposed to live according to the law. They were seen as scholars who interpreted the law. Many of the scribes, probably most of the scribes, particularly in Galilee, would have also been Pharisees. So not all Pharisees were scribes, but most of your scribes in the place where Jesus is beginning his ministry, the northern part of Israel, would have been Pharisees. And he has regular conflict, particularly as we get to the middle section of Mark, he has regular conflict with this group of people. As Jesus' ministry grows in popularity, he's challenging the power of the religious ruling elite of that day, and they come after him. In one of those places, in one of those accounts, in Mark chapter 7, the scribes and the Pharisees are coming after Jesus because his disciples are eating with unclean hands. Now, I, when we get to Mark 7, I'll preach this in a little more detail. But just, just to give you the context, I want to read what Jesus says to them in, in Mark 7. This, this isn't that they, you know, had been working outside all day or were doing something. They didn't go wash their hands. It, it wasn't like germs that they were concerned of. But what the scribes and Pharisees were concerned for was that they had created their own regulations about how someone was supposed to uh, ritualistically wash their hands before they ate. And Jesus, recognizing that they didn't have the authority to do that, allowed his disciples to eat with what they considered unclean hands. And in Mark 7, Jesus responds to them. And he says this to them. He says the, that the prophet Isaiah prophesied of you hypocrites as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandments of God in order to establish your traditions. So this is who the scribes, the people in Capernaum, are comparing the teachings of Jesus to the teachings of the scribes. And if we take what Jesus says in Mark 7 and bring it here into Mark chapter 1, we know why. Because the people recognized that the scribes were teaching with an authority that they had assumed upon themselves, but Jesus was teaching with an authority that was inherent because of who he is. That they were creating commandments, Jesus says, 
They were, they were establishing their own tradition and leaving the truth of what God had actually said by the wayside. So Mark then supports the, the, the inherent authority of Jesus' teaching ministry by following up this interaction in Capernaum with four demonstrations of his authority. Two, about his ability to cast out demons and two, his ability to heal the sick. And all of this goes together. That, that what's happening here at the end of Mark chapter one is Mark is establishing for us that Jesus is an authority. He is the authority in contrast to, and the narrative for the, from the gathered people there in Capernaum provides this for us in contrast to those who were claiming authority. So Jesus is different. And from the very outset of his ministry, his teaching ministry shows that authority and it is recognized by those who receive it. But his authority is also recognized in his healing ministry. Now we're gonna take these in a little bit out of order. There's one moment in the middle that we're gonna skip and come to at the end. So let's just look at them um, as we find them, beginning back in verse 23. And immediately, so in that synagogue in Capernaum, there was a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him and they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves saying, what is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all of the surrounding regions of Galilee. So here in this first kind of encounter that Jesus has to demonstrate his authority, this physical demonstration of his authority that has already been recognized in his teaching ministry is an encounter that he has with a demon-possessed man. And notice who instigates the, the, the interaction. Jesus teaches, the crowd recognizes authority, and Mark tells us that immediately this man with the unclean spirit cries out towards Jesus, that the demon recognizes the authority and even professes and says, the Holy One of God. This is one of two times that we're going to see here in the first chapter of Mark that demons directly recognize Jesus, that they recognize the authority of Jesus. And Jesus commands him to be silent and to come out and that's what happens. But to reiterate his point, Mark then goes back and quotes the Capernaum people again. And they were amazed, we're told. And then they question again, what is this? It is a new teaching with authority. Do you notice that they don't talk about his healing ministry? What do they talk about? They talk about his teaching ministry. Because the healing ministry of Jesus supports the teaching ministry. So for a second time, these people gathered in the synagogue at Capernaum have already recognized his authority once and now he does this and they're just awestruck and amazed. A new teaching with authority. If we go to verse 32, we see another encounter with a evil spirit. Mark records for us, starting in verse 32, that evening at sundown, they, broke, they, they brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door and healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. So 
In a more general sense, here in verses 32, 33, and 34, Mark summarizes kind of an ongoing, te- ongoing healings that Jesus is doing. That he's given us one fuller description, and now he's giving us some summary descriptions. But notice what Mark says in the commentary, that he says that Jesus doesn't allow them to speak because they knew him. So just as that Man with the unclean spirit knew who Jesus was in the synagogue. So do the others that they bring to him. So there's this spiritual recognition of authority on the spiritual side of what Jesus is doing. There's this recognition that he is something different, that he is the Holy One of God, that he is the Son of God, the Messiah, sent with authority from God. And he doesn't permit them to speak. I'm going to talk in a minute about why he doesn't permit them to speak. This is not the only It's not just demons he doesn't permit to speak. It's a regular theme in Mark. But here we have this support for this this inherent authority of Jesus, even professed by demons that he is casting out of people. But we also see Jesus heal act just regular sick people. So not everyone that was sick in the first century had a demon. Many of them were just sick. And we're going to see two accounts of that. Go back to verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew. This is Peter. This is Peter's home with James and John. These are the disciples that he has called from their fishing boats in the previous passage that we considered last week. And now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever. And immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her and she began to serve them. So this is an expansion of the healing ministry of Jesus. So that they leave the the synagogue and they go to Peter's house. Now, those of you, our our last trip to Israel, Capernaum, because of some COVID stuff, we never got to go to Capernaum, but our first trip did. And they have excavated that area, that first century city there. And you always have to take certain things with a grain of salt when they show you, you're like, this is the place because... We don't always know that, but we can know where the synagogue was because synagogues were built in a certain place. And we were shown this was the synagogue at Capernaum, and that was kind of neat. And we walked just a few feet over here, and they're like, this was Peter's mother-in-law's house. We're like, okay, maybe. It was a house. I mean, that's what we know, right? It was, it was a house. This is not a big place, though. Capernaum was not, a, was not a large city. This is a town. This is a fishing village. Everyone knows everybody else. And so you have this amazed reaction to Jesus' teaching and to him casting out this demon. And, and the, the crowd moves out of the synagogue and somebody comes and they're like, Peter, don't you remember that your mother-in-law is sick? She has a fever, we're told. We're not told why she has a fever, what it was that she was battling, but we're told she does. And Jesus goes, we're told immediately in verse 29, He leaves the synagogue, goes into that house, and heals her. And she is made whole. So we have this, we have a a casting out of demons is the first story. We have a healing of a fever is the second story. We have another casting, another kind of general healing and casting out of demons. Then we have a more specific healing at the end of the passage. So let's skip ahead to verse 40. Mark tells us that a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. 
And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean and Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer uh, for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. So here we see as the, the section started with kind of a specific um, demon possession healing, now we have a very specific and detailed account of Jesus healing someone who is not demon possessed but who has leprosy. So let me explain leprosy because this is something that we don't often deal with and maybe you're unfamiliar with the biblical text and don't know what this is. Leprosy was a general term in the first century uh, for diseases that attacked the outside of the body, right? And we still have leprosy today. It's still uh, in some parts of the world a, an issue in some, in some places. It was distinctly an issue uh, in the first century. And it was most often, dating all the way back to the Old Testament, it was most often seen uh, as judgment from the Lord based off of the, the Old Testament law in Leviticus 13, Leviticus 14, about how people contract uh, leprosy and about how people are cleansed from leprosy. It was, it was regarded as evidence that God was punishing someone. Lepers were removed from their, uh, from their city, they were moved from their town, they were moved from their homes. We're told stories in the New Testament of lepers living uh, in caves, of lepers living uh, in graveyards, of lepers colonizing together and kind of grouping together and forming their own little miniature cities that everyone rejected them and they were seen as judged by God by this culture. But here we have at the very outset of Jesus' ministry, I mean, we're in the first chapter, and, and what's got to be the most difficult illness that, of the day, the, the one that had the most stigma attached to it, that this is the person who comes to Jesus and first professes faith. Do you notice what he says in verse 40? If you will, you can make me clean. So far, it's been Jesus reaching into the lives of people. He, he reaches out to that demon who, who, who recognizes him in the synagogue. He reaches out to Peter's mother. He reaches out on that evening to the others who are sick or possessed. But now, now we have one coming to him. One who would have been ostracized by all society. One who, when he walked up, everyone else took a step back. And he says to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. This leper has, must have heard about the amazing things that Jesus is doing. And he recognizes Jesus' ability and authority to heal him. And Jesus is, we're told, moved with pity. This is compassion that Jesus has on this man. And he stretches out his hand and does something that no one else would do. He touches him. We're told that Jesus stretches out his hand and touches him and says, I will be clean. Now, we can't gloss over the fact that Jesus reaches out and touches a guy that he was not supposed to reach out and touch, that no one, since the moment that this man had, had contracted this disease, no one had touched this man. He had to move out of his house. 
He had to quit his job. He had to move out of his town. When people would see him coming, when he would see other people coming, it was required under the law that he would announce himself as a leper so that they would be able to take another path and not come in contact with him. But Jesus, in his authority, reaches out and touches this man. This man recognizes the authority of Jesus calls out for Jesus to heal him, and Jesus does so. And then what he gives this man two sets of instructions. One, don't tell anybody, and I'm going to come to that. The second, he tells him, go and perform the, the requirements under the law that you're required to perform. He would have been required to go to the priest and to show himself and, and to make offering and sacrifice and to go through ritual bathing and to prove that he was no longer a leper so that he could then rejoin society. And Jesus says, go and do all of that. Go and show them that you're clean. But he says, don't tell anyone. So the same instruction that he's given to demons, be quiet. He's giving to this man. Now, this becomes an important theme in Mark, and it's going to be helpful if I answer why. On numerous occasions, Mark is going to tell demons and people and throughout numerous interactions over the first number of chapters, he's going to tell them, don't tell anybody what I've done. Don't tell anybody who I am. This is known as the divine secret within Mark. It's an emphasis within Mark. And uh, Dr. Danny Aiken, writing his commentary on the gospel of Mark, provides seven, and I just want to cover these really quickly, uh, seven reasons why uh, Mark highlights Jesus telling people not to tell people who he is, because that seems to fly in direct contradiction to what we know that we're supposed to tell people about Jesus. It's going to fly in direct contradiction to what I'm going to tell you at the end of the sermon. So why does Jesus tell these specific people or spirits to, to be quiet? Seven reasons really quickly. Number one, Jesus wanted to avoid the impression of simply being a miracle worker or even a magician. Jesus wasn't the only one traveling around the countryside in the first century claiming to have powers. It was actually a somewhat profitable business if you could fool people. And there were people who built great names for themselves as quote-unquote miracle workers in Jesus' day. And Jesus did not want to be confused with who these people are. And so he told them, at least early in his ministry, don't, don't go tell them who I am. Number two, it avoided unhelpful publicity to focus on disciple-making. Early in Jesus' ministry, and we're going to see even by the end of this chapter that the crowds press on Jesus so much that he can't go into the cities. And he was establishing this disciple-making model with, with the 12, who he's going to name the 12 in chapter 2. And as the crowds push in on Jesus, it gives him less opportunity to spend with the 12. Number three, to avoid the common misconception and expectations for the Messiah. So in the first century, they were looking for the Messiah. They were just looking in the wrong place. They were looking for a political conqueror. They were looking for someone who would come in and expel Rome from Israel and reestablish the throne of David. But who the Messiah truly was, was the son of God come as the suffering servant. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as his popularity grew, we see this th throughout the gospel narratives, that there are people that try to come and take Jesus and make him into their understanding of the Messiah. Number four, 
It was seen as an expression of humility. Jesus is showing us his servant attitude by not saying, all right, I healed you, now go brag about it. So there's, a, there's an expression of humility, number five, to point people to faith in the work of Jesus on the cross and not simply to his healing power. Jesus' work isn't done. We're still just in chapter one. And yes, we are supposed to proclaim the work of Jesus, but the finished work of Jesus happens on the cross and three days later and resurrected from the grave. And it's that that we declare to people. Number six, to avoid early instances of confrontation with the religious elite. We've already mentioned the scribes, the Pharisees are going to come, the Sadducees are going to come, and these people have wielded a lot of power, and so Jesus puts off the confrontation with them to later in his ministry. And finally, number seven, a contrast of attitude with those religious elite, religious elite. These were people that assumed they had authority and demanded others to see that authority in them. They wanted to exercise power. Jesus wanted to exercise humility before them. So this is two examples, and we will see more, where Jesus instructs people to be quiet about what he has done in their life, even though this leper here is the first, at least rudimentary, profession of faith that this man believed Jesus could heal him because he recognized his authority. Third, Jesus' authority and his divine connection with the Father. Tucked in between these healing accounts, Jesus goes off to pray. We read in verse 35, and rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and place and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to him, said to them, let us go to the next town that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This brief description of the prayer ministry of Jesus is unique in Mark because Mark does not emphasize the prayer ministry of Jesus in the same way that Matthew and Luke do, the other two synoptic gospels. Only three times in the entire account of Mark, or in the entire gospel of Mark, are we told about Jesus' pray. Here at the beginning of his Galilean ministry, Later, at the height of his Galilean ministry, immediately after feeding the 5,000, Jesus goes out to pray. And then at the very end of his time in Jerusalem, the night before he is crucified, he prays in Gethsemane. And only one of those three times does Mark even tell us what Jesus prayed. It is only in the Garden of Gethsemane that Mark records for us the prayer of Jesus. So why do this here? Why in the middle of, of these demon possession stories and why in the middle of these healings and this pointing towards the authority of Jesus and introducing for us the authority of Jesus, why does Mark take this break and tell us that Jesus goes out to pray? It's to make the connection between Jesus and the Father. That Jesus' authority is, is inherent to him because... He and the Father are one because he is one with the Father and the Father is one with him. Jesus will describe it like this. In, in Luke chapter 10, he, he publicly prays. He prays this first part publicly. People hear him. So starting in verse 21, it says, In that same hour he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wives and understanding and revealed to them 
to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then he turns just to his disciples, we're told in verse 23, and privately says, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. So what is it that Jesus tells the disciples they're blessed to see and to hear? They're blessed to see and to hear what he has thanked God for, that he and the Father are one. That by seeing the Son, you see the Father. And that as the Son reveals the Father to people, their eyes are opened. And so the authority of Jesus, which is Mark's subject in Mark 1, it it comes from his relationship with the Father, that he is part of the Godhead. We know this as Trinitarian theology. It means that we believe the Bible professes that there is one God, but he eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are all God. They are all part of one God, but they are not all each other. But to see one is to see the other. And this is what Jesus is saying, and that all of them have this authority And so Jesus, in his earthly ministry, from the outset, has the authority of the Father. In John 14, after what really amounts to a very famous section in John, where Jesus uh, tells his disciples that he's going to prayer, prayer place for them, um, and one of them asks, and they're like, we don't know where you're going, how can we get there? And Jesus famously says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. He then says this, Philip then turns to him and says, Lord, show us the Father and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long and you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak out of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on account of the works themselves. Jesus is representing to us the Father. And I think this is why Mark shows us this in the middle of all this going on, attributing, uh, attesting to the authority of Jesus. We see Jesus go and connect with the Father in prayer. Because it is from the Father that Jesus has the all authority to do what he is doing and to teach what he is teaching. So what? Followers of Jesus as the Messiah recognize his authority and proclaim it to others. Followers of Jesus as the Messiah recognize his authority and proclaim it to others. Let's begin with the fact that we must, if we are a true follower of Jesus, we recognize that he possesses an authority that is universal, that he possesses an authority that is unending, that he possesses an authority that is unchallenged in our world that Jesus has all authority. The church of God has recognized this from the very beginning. When Paul writes his letter to the church at Ephesus, he writes to them, and one of the things that he says he is thankful for is that they recognize this fact. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 1. He says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches and glorious inheritance 
in, in the saints and that what is immeasurably greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of him from the dead and Sorry, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's a couple of just like really long run-on sentences there that... that Uh, Paul's using to say this, church, I am thankful that you have faith in Jesus and recognize that he has all authority. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. To be a follower of Jesus is to recognize the authority of Jesus, to recognize that he has power that you do not have. This is the contrast between those who follow Jesus and those who follow the world. Those who follow the world find authority within the world. They, they place authority in their lives. Many of them, they consider themselves to be the ultimate authority. Others, they place their trust in the authority of some other kind of false religion or false way. They, put their, they, they place authority in some type of philosophy that they have ascribed to. But when we come to Christ, we recognize that he has put all things, the Father has put all of those things under the feet of Jesus, that he has conquered all of those things, and that he is the one true authority. To follow Jesus is to turn away from all of the things of the world and to say, you are now in control of my life. That invitation that we saw last week to the disciples, follow me as an invitation to recognize the authority of Jesus. And as the church of God recognizes the authority of Jesus, it also declares his authority over all things. We recognize his authority and we also proclaim it. And you say, wait, there are times here that Jesus told people not to, not to proclaim it. Is that still applicable to us today? Absolutely not. Let's actually look and see what happened. You'll notice that I kind of skipped a couple of verses in the exegesis of the text. Look with me at the end of the, the, the encounter that he has in Capernaum, verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding regions of Galilee. When Jesus demonstrated his authority through teaching and healing, what happens? His fame spreads everywhere. At the end of the section, kind of closing this off, bookending these two things and his encounter with the man with leprosy, we read in verse 45, but he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly, could no longer openly enter a town but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. To be a follower of Jesus is declare his authority over all things. And Mark uses the first account and the last account of this section to remind us of this. Yes, he told the demon and yes, he told this uh, man with leprosy to be quiet for that moment, but the fame of Jesus spreads anyway. And when the church of God truly recognizes the authority of Jesus, we cannot help but to proclaim it to others. Can't help it. You say, do you fault this, uh, this man with leprosy? He directly disobeyed Jesus. Do you fault him for it? 
(laughs) This man who had been ostracized by his community, this man who felt as if he had been judged by God, this man who was on the outside of society, touched by Jesus and healed, what would you do? You'd tell everybody too. And hear me, sinner. Dead in your trespasses and sin, Jesus reached out and he touched you and you recognize his authority and you follow him. And what do we do then? We go out and we tell people about what Jesus has done for us. To follow Jesus is to recognize his authority, but to follow Jesus is to proclaim his authority to those who are still following false authorities in our world. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you've cleansed us, that you've touched us, that you've healed us, that you sent Jesus, our Messiah, the Son of God, with all authority to provide for us access to you. May your church proclaim the authority of Christ boldly in our world, we ask. Would you help us to do so? Would your gospel spread? Father, for those who may still be looking towards their, looking inwards for authority or looking towards some other earthly authority, would they abandon that false hope and run towards Jesus, who alone has the authority to save, we ask in his name. Amen. Church family, we're going to respond together now. We're going to do so by recognizing this simple fact. When we come to Jesus, just like the sick came to Jesus, like the demon possessed came to Jesus, like um, the leper came to Jesus, we come just as we are. (laughs) Jesus reaches out and touches us and we profess our thankfulness and gratitude for his authority in our lives to do that. If you've never recognized that, at the end of our service, I'll be in the lobby. Would you come find me at the Connect Desk? Let's talk about how you can put your faith and trust in Jesus and his authority to save you today. Let's respond together as we stand and sing.